I'm Cal Cates. And I am Kathy Ryan. Welcome to another episode of Interdisciplinary. In this podcast, massage therapy educators, practitioners, and positive deviants, Kathy Ryan and me, Cal Cates, will use research, science, experience, and humor to explore the broad landscape of healthcare through a truly interdisciplinary lens. We'll have honest, uncomfortable conversations about topics like access, racism, death, ageism, ableism, and equity. Uh, You'll always learn something, you'll always laugh, and you'll always come away better informed and with real things you can do in your own community and practice to create a more compassionate world for people who care for people. Be sure to like us and share our link and give us stars and reviews and all the things in the places where you consume podcasts. Thanks for listening. And now the moment you've all been waiting for, this week's pun. Not that we would want to drown a hipster, but how do you drown a hipster? In the mainstream. <laughs> ah, so, <laughs> Kathy, what Start. is happening in British Columbia? Well, I just keep repeating myself. COVID is real. It's still happening. Um, people, please continue to wear masks, even though for some reason it seems like we're being told that those who have been vaccinated don't have to wear a mask like miraculously we're going to glow in the dark or something maybe we will we don't know that yet but uh on the honor system which has worked really well so far not so much (laughs) yeah we're we're uh we're in the same boat here and i i don't envy the cdc i mean i i think um these are very political times and uh to do what's actually safe will be politically unpopular and and will garner a, a degree of pushback that could also lead to lack of safety and so um, yeah, I think I think that one of the things that's not getting enough airtime is that when you when you say that a nation is seventy percent vaccinated, that's not actually true because when we look at specific communities, we see yet again a very big difference between black and brown communities and who is and is not vaccinated. And when you open restaurants even to seventy five percent, we are yet again putting minoritized communities at higher risk. Um, because not everybody has gotten vaccinated. And as you said, Kathy, we're, we're doing it on honor system. Um, and for lots of reasons, but I think certainly here in America, because Americans are concerned that having to show that you've been vaccinated is a violation of their rights. And so here we are again, um, not really again, still in this place of trying to figure out how to balance uh, public opinion and public safety and they don't really balance. So uh, we will be in for a ride here these next couple months as things open up and we'll see. I love to be wrong and I hope I'm wrong about this, but uh, we're going to keep masking here and certainly in my practice. And uh, there are some local communities that are also saying like, I know the CDC said this is cool, but how about if we all just mask for a little bit longer? Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out in the next few months. And uh, I, I just hope it doesn't lead to more deaths, but people really want to get back to normal or whatever it was that was happening before. So yikes. Um, yeah, so we have some exciting guests with us today who, um, I imagine COVID will probably come up a little bit for them as well. Uh, so we have, uh, Tara Winger and Dan Berger here with us and they will be, uh, representing, uh, the service coordinators, uh, of the world or at least of America. And, uh, <laughs> we'll let them tell you who they are and what service coordinators are. And, uh, then we'll get into it. Tara, you want to introduce yourself first? Sure. Um, my name is Tara Wenger. Um, I am the Senior Director of Support Services for National Church Residences. 
And our organization is one of the largest affordable housing providers for seniors, as well as one of the largest um, employers and support service providers for service coordinators across the country. Um, we primarily, like I said, work with seniors. Um, and so definitely um, we've been dealing with COVID for that specific population um, a lot across the past year and um, would love to get into that and other topics today. Well, and uh, my name's Dan Berger. I am the uh, client relations director in our support services department working alongside Tara. I've been with National Church Residences for about 15 years, uh, working in that same department for about 14 of those. I ran service coordinator programs for clients all over the country. We work with about 50 or 55 different other management companies and owners of affordable housing, um, and we help them do run their programs. We help them do quality assurance. Um, and so about a, about a year ago, actually, it was January 1st of 2020, right? Right before COVID is when I took on a new role within the department, and that was uh, marketing and sales. You know, we never, all our business, we'd always done through referrals. And so we said, hey, let's try something different. I was ready for a change. Um, and so hence our podcast, the the service coordinator podcast came out of out of that. Um, and that's kind of where we are today. Um, so, yeah, we're happy to be here. Yeah, boy, you wanted a change. And then 2020 happened also. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thanks, universe. Yeah, <laughs> really. So I, I'm really interested. We, Healwell was, was contacted two years ago by the uh, American Association of Service Coordinators to do some training courses. And until then, I didn't even know service coordinators were a thing. And I was so glad <laughs> to learn that they are a thing. Um, but I feel like there are some places where being a service coordinator is obviously linked to healthcare, but other places that it still is if you have a broad view of healthcare, but maybe might not be thought of. And so I guess I'm curious about like, tell us what, I mean, there is no such thing as an average day in the life of a service coordinator, as far as I can tell. Um, but what, um, cause you serve the property managers, but you also certainly serve the residents and um, that can't be an easy job because I bet they have some different goals and um, challenges come with each of those <laughs> constituencies. Yeah, definitely. So, um, yeah, service coordinators definitely have a very niche um, role to play. Um, more and more, especially when it comes to service coordinators who serve seniors, um, we, as a kind of a field, have realized that addressing social determinants of health is super key to helping seniors um, age healthily in place, to continue to be able to live in independent living, affordable housing type settings, um, and achieving the goal of helping our residents to address the needs that they have related to social determinants of health, um, not only helps to keep residents healthy and, you know, kind of like holistically healthy, um, it there's huge benefits to the property management, you know, developers, et cetera, um, because it means that there's less turnover of their units. It means that when you think about um, all of the regulations that come along with affordable housing, um, they have to do, you know, like unit inspections and all these things. And if, if residents are failing inspections or getting lease violations because 
they just aren't physically or mentally able to fulfill kind of some activities of daily living types of tasks. Um, it doesn't make sense to evict a person for that. It makes sense to get them connected to in-home services. And service coordinators are uniquely positioned to be that advocate and come alongside those residents. Um, I think that one really cool part of the service coordinator role is the fact that they're essentially non-clinicians. They they aren't social workers. They aren't um, care coordinators. They are there to be, um, we always like to say they're the... um, you know, the the daughter or son or child of the resident that they're serving um, in the sense of kind of stepping in and being an advocate that is familiar and can help to translate jargon to, you know, normal speak and help um, give advice in a gentle and kind of empowering way. Um, And so especially when it comes to serving seniors, that can go a long way, uh, especially when you think about, um, so much of the world and accessing services becoming very technology driven and very um, transactional in nature, having people whose whole role it is to build relationships and meet people where they're at um, really can empower residents to address some of the things that could otherwise lead to bad health outcomes, as well as instability and housing and all those different things. Yeah. Wow. And that's it. Now, is this, this is initially a HUD funded program. Is that correct? Or is it still? Yeah, it's a, it's a HUD funded program. Um, This whole thing started back about 20 years ago. HUD put out some grant money and said, Hey, we're going to start the HUD service coordinator program. Our organization was already heavily into senior affordable housing, saw the program, jumped on it and started writing grant applications to HUD started getting a bunch of service coordinators. Um, and then, you know, we're pretty well known in the, in the, uh, industry. And so they said, Hey, where'd you, where'd you get that service coordinator? Can you help us out? And so we said, yeah, we'll help you write the application. So, you know, we're dealing with property management companies, you know, these buildings, affordable housing is anywhere from 10 units to 400 units, depending on where you're at. And so these are property management companies that are worried about, you know, collecting rent and, and what the, what the building looks like. So social service needs, needs aren't, aren't always, you know, at the top of the list, but when a service coordinator can come in there and uh, link, it's always a linkage. It's never a direct service. It's a linkage to the services within the area that allow them to age in place. And that's our entire goal. And um, really our goal with even the podcast is really to, you know, get service coordinators to be a little bit more proactive, not just sit in your office and wait for those residents to come to you when there's a a crisis. So our goal is to be uh, getting the word out there, giving service coordinators all the resources they can, they can have to, uh, you know, really bring their communities uh, together more. Uh, I know COVID's uh, been a little bit uh, tough with that, but uh, yeah, just like Tara said, we're trying to empower our service coordinators more than we ever have before. So hopefully, uh, hopefully the podcast can do that too. Yeah. And I think it is, um, definitely, I think the, the majority of service coordinators, um, exist to serve affordable housing today, um, funded through HUD or other, um, means not all affordable housing is HUD funded. There's also state funded programs for affordable housing and service coordinators exist in those settings as well. 
Um, there's also a lot of innovative programs happening. Um, uh, just a few that we have going at our organization. Um, one that embeds a service coordinator at a fire station um, so that EMS and fire responders who are getting the, I've, the, I've fallen and I can't get up kind of yes. calls, um, or the, I have a medical emergency, but really I just want to talk to someone call um, yeah. that they, that service coordinators could be kind of dispatched to address. It. Obviously they don't do medical emergencies, but once the EMS have determined there isn't a medical emergency and that there are household needs that could be addressed through service coordination. The service coordinator um, works with the community resident to get them connected to services, just like they would if they were in an affordable housing building. Um, we also have programs that um, are kind of niche in nature. So there's a service coordinator whose whole role is to help people make sure they've maximized their benefits, um, food stamps, Medicaid, the um, all the parts of Medicare, <laughs> um, yeah. all those different things. Um, and so that's kind of a, a lighter touch type of program, but um, really making sure people are financially well off. Um, and, and the third program that I would highlight is that we, are, we have a partnership in Atlanta with the local chapter of Habitat, Habitat for Humanity, um, where the as they have a repair program for older adults and community members, rather than building new houses, they're trying to help people with maintenance of their current homes, and including but not limited to things like installing grab bars and um, other modifications for, for seniors as they age. And they will also refer to the service coordinator if they're seeing, you know, maybe there's some food insecurity or there's not necessarily kind of like a physical modification that's needed, but that, but maybe there's some in-home services or something like that that is needed. And then the service coordinator will work with them to help get those services in place. Um, so though there are lots of different ways that service coordinators kind of plug in. And, you know, with the title of the podcast, the idea of having someone on the interdisciplinary team who is not the direct service provider, they're really there to be an advocate, a translator, a, you know, a person who comes alongside the identified client to make sure that their voice is being heard and they're getting what they need. Um, that's really the, the niche that service coordinators fit into regardless of the setting that they are um, serving within. And, and I will say it, it, it all started with the HUD service coordinator program. We still run the programs with by those guidelines, but like Tara said, the funding could come from, you guys. It doesn't matter where the funding's coming from. Yeah. We run the programs pretty similarly uh, across the country. So HUD, the HUD service coordinator program kind of started it all. But like Tara said, uh, you know, we obviously know that, you know, it's just not in affordable housing that those seniors need those linkages. It's those that are well off out in the community. And so that's where the firehouse program came into play. And so, um, so yeah, service coordinators are not just in affordable housing. There our goal is to really get them out more into the community, um, but then you know it becomes a funding issue. Who's funding? Who's funding that that position? So, 
Well, I think uh, your capacity to think outside the box, you know, uh, partnering with Habitat for Humanity for for the services that they're providing, as well as, you know, the fire and rescue folks, all those places where perhaps they may interact with people in need. uh, And perhaps these people in need aren't out in the community in ways that they can even know that such a thing is available to them. So I think that's just really brilliant that you guys are thinking outside the box that way. And you said, Tara, that um, you said that obviously they're they're not social workers. But I thought I remembered when I talked with Melody that some of the people who find themselves doing service coordinator coordinator work come from social work. So obviously, yeah. remember that they're not social workers. But I can't imagine that those skills are incredibly valuable in that setting. Yeah, definitely. It definitely the um, field of service coordination. I think definitely borrows a lot from this social work philosophy. I am a master's level social worker myself, and a lot of our um, like program leaders are social workers. Um, I think the key difference is um, the I, the idea of it there being kind of like a there's a, a little bit of a secret sauce to not having been clinicalized, so to speak. You know what I mean? That yeah. um, the people who the people who become service coordinators, sometimes they have degrees in social work, sometimes they have degrees in gerontology, or, um, you know, family or human service type of degrees. Um, But more we care, at least for our hiring purposes, we care more about have they have they had service um, experience? Are they well networked in their community? Are they people who are good at relationship building? Do they set you at ease when you talk to them? Um, You know, I like to think of it as um, you know, if if you had the nosy neighbor who you never realized was nosy because they're just so fun to talk to and <laughs> somehow you're telling your whole life to them, but yes. like, you know, that you didn't ever feel like it was invasive. Um, that skill is not really something, obviously a lot of social workers and other helping professionals are people like that. And you can technically teach that skill, but there's also something to that being just who a person is. Um, and the kind of like raw version of that, that hasn't been boxed in with the like step-by-step theories, um, that unique role obviously needs to exist in an interdisciplinary team because there needs to be oversight. There needs to be ethics and, um, good theory involved with programs. Um, but there, there's something to be said for that kind of coming alongside in a way that isn't. I know a lot more than you because I have a certain degree sort of thing. Tara, you've just described many of the massage therapists I know. <laughs> it's true. It's a, well, and it's it, that, you know, that makes me think, Kathy, I mean, we talk about at Healwell, we, we don't advocate for massage therapy. We advocate for massage therapists because anybody can rub and everybody should get rubbed. We would all be happier and more comfortable if we were getting kind touch. It um, is the answer to world peace. It is. But if you have a trained person practicing the discipline of massage therapy, you get that person you just described and you get a a whole like extra layer of benefit. But I'm wondering, it sounds like you could find like a service coordinator job listing in a non-clinical advertising location and sort of like, how do you, like you could be a person who's never service coordinated before and start doing this job. So how do you 
what's is what is their training? What do you just is just like, hey, now you're a service yes. coordinator. Good luck. <laughs> no, definitely there's tons of training. Um the the key things that we make sure our service coordinators are kind of versed in. Um first of all, everybody's trained in motivational interviewing as their technique for engaging people. Obviously that looks very different than in motivational interviewing being used in like a clinical therapeutic type of setting. But the basic ideas of figuring out what a person wants to accomplish and then using change-oriented language to help them move toward that. Um, There's so many times where, especially with seniors, we are framing goals as like pushing off impending bad things, like lack of independence, grief, loss, et cetera. And if we flip the framing to not be avoiding bad things, but instead being able to continue doing good things, um, like getting to the um, sports games of a grandchild or being able to go on the cruise that they want to go on, um, you know, continuing to socialize with their friends. When you when you are used motivational interviewing, you are way more likely to frame things in that direction. And that's the kind of nuance that I think a lot of helping professionals don't get to with seniors, especially. Um, There's so many helping professionals saying, well, we need to do this to like make your health better. Or if you don't do this, you might have this bad health outcome. Um, And, and even framing things as like the, the goal to work toward is not going to a nursing home. It doesn't really matter. Like even, even if you are in a nursing home, you can still have a very fulfilling and high quality life. But it's about like, what are your goals? So the motivational interviewing is huge in terms of listening to seniors as people. Um, and then um, we also train people in what's called exceptional caring, essentially kind of like leaning into that vulnerability and bringing a lot of heart to the job, um, go, the going above and beyond and saying, what's the next thing that I can do to help you? Um, and those two things, um, it, it, exceptional caring also involves a lot of like empathetic listening and, and similar social worky types of skills. Um, but it's essentially kind of saying what's just the basic set of things that are needed to come across as an open and caring person um, without necessarily needing to layer in all these additional things that aren't really necessary if you're not like providing therapy, counseling or a direct service of some sort. And to go off of the, the, what you were saying before, as far as what, what service coordinators are coming into the, to the job with, I was, I hired service coordinators for 15 years and, you know, we get some service coordinators straight out of college that had, you know, some type of bachelor's in social work, um, or we get somebody that's, you know, in their fifties or sixties, you know, saying, hey, you know, I'm just looking to slow down a little bit. Maybe I'm looking for part-time. There are a lot of part-time service coordinator positions. But either way, everyone that becomes a service coordinator absolutely loves it. Um, you know, it's, it's. I think the only service coordinators that ever leave tend to be the young ones that, like, maybe want to go spread their wings a little bit more beyond yeah. that and see what else is out there. But a lot of times service coordinators will get in there and be like, oh, my gosh, okay. You know, I get to see my residents every single day. I get to build relationships with them, get to know them, get to know their families. Hopefully I like my property manager um, and I get along with them. But um, service coordinators absolutely love their job. And 
um, you know, a lot of our, a lot of the residents are, are, are single widows. And so, you know, you, you get to, you get to build relationships with them. And a lot of times the service coordinators are the only people in their lives, families not involved sometimes. So, um, service coordinators absolutely love their job, but typically it's a bachelor, bachelor's degree in social work. But, you know, we got master's level service coordinators. We got licensed all over the place. Um, if you don't have a bachelor's degree, you need probably two to three years experience in some type of social service field where you're, you're, you're linking up, uh, you know, uh, services, especially with seniors, but maybe, maybe you're working in another field with kids or families, whatever it might be. So. So who do you report to as a service coordinator? Like I'm thinking, is there, is there a sort of documentation or like, does it, I mean, talk to us about that. Yeah. Um, so for HUD service coordination, kind of our traditional, um, there is specific documentation and reporting that has to be done to the HUD um, grant specialists that manage the grants that fund the programs. Um, the program also includes funding for quality assurance. One, that's one of the services that we specialize in. Um, and that is where we get a lot of that clinical oversight. Um, our, at least at our organization, the quality assurance specialists are all licensed social workers. Um, and also have background in various niches of expertise. So we have a person on our team who actually was an adult protective service case manager for a while. Um, So obviously that plays into us giving clinical guidance on when adult protective services should be involved. Um, We also have, um, we have people who have been service coordinators. We have people who have been... um, like one of our one of our uh, QA specialists was actually a um, a resident advisor in college, which is you don't really think about that being connected, but that's basically like the college <laughs> version of a service coordinator. <laughs> Different services, you know, but you know yeah. we're embedded in the place where the people live and are the guiding take care of themselves yep um and he also has other (laughs) experience as well but that's that sort of thing of looking for relevant um experience and expertise um so the quality assurance team does a ton of work to make sure that we're meeting the guidelines that hud sets out for the program that hud has um a whole handbook that says kind of what service coordinators should and shouldn't be doing how to structure your program, those kinds of things. Um, And then in general, we also obviously look to ask the American Association of Service Coordinators as kind of like our industry association for um, guidance on best practices and um, keeping up with like a code of ethics and those sorts of things. And then um, we also borrow heavily from social work because it's kind of like the most closely related um, licensed field that exists. Um, so yeah, there's a ton of that sort of stuff. And then every organization kind of works within that framework to determine kind of their, their own spin on things. So like at National Church Residences, we stay very heavily focused on social determinants of health because we're serving primarily seniors. And so we use, um, specific assessment models and intervention models related to intervening with uh, social determinants of health. Um, other organizations like that may be serving family sites may have more of a model that includes like, things like financial coaching, 
or um, helping people to build toward maybe buying their own home or moving to a higher income bracket. Um, if they are serving children, it might be education and those sorts of outcomes that they're looking for. Um, and then I think most service coordinators would also be working toward goals related to um, kind of like community engagement, things things that help um, affordable housing residents become more involved with their community and advocating for their needs, things like um, voting and um, being involved with local politics and issues that may be arising that affect um, that specific group of residents. Um, you talked kind of toward the beginning about how minority communities sometimes get left behind and affordable housing um, typically ends up serving, if nothing else already being in affordable housing is being a minority um, category, so to speak, yeah. but there's higher rates of people who are other types of minorities living in affordable housing as well. And so many times um, the the last year's election, especially with COVID and trying to get access to the polls and all of those things, there was a huge push um, amongst the affordable housing providers to, to have a concerted efforts to do um, voter registration, voter access, um, especially because a lot of times our sites are actually polling locations. Um, and thinking, how do we keep our residents safe while also having the public come during a pandemic to vote at our sites? Yeah. <laughs> um, and and if we decide to not be a polling place, what does that do to access to voting in the areas? Um, so all of those are things that service coordinators are at the crux of because the person at the site who's going to like make sure that the polling location gets set up appropriately and make sure that people get registered to vote appropriately is the service coordinator, um, the property managers, maintenance people, et cetera, they're there to serve the, the physical location, the, the building as the facility is their kind of identified client. Um, and sure, they need to be making sure residents are happy and healthy to achieve their goals. Um, but it's really the service coordinator who's there for the human needs of the site. And so there's a lot that comes up related to that. Absolutely. So, so I have two questions and one, you, you sort of started to peek at it. Um, so the one question is, I, I was making the assumption that it sounds like it's is somewhat correct that there are minoritized people are more commonly residents in affordable housing, um, whether that be BIPOC, LGBTQ, um, people obviously who are in lower socioeconomic status. Uh, and I'm curious about the breakdown of service coordinators in terms of, is there parity or do you have sort of a majority white service coordinators serving a, a BIPOC community? And then I'm thinking about sort of, I mean, the, the health high stakes of chronic illness and serious illness, but also the the high stakes of potential homelessness in terms of, you know, health decline and all of the intersecting factors. And is, I mean, I would think that service coordinators are not that they're the last line, but that a service coordinator's effectiveness could have a direct result on the health and longevity of a person. And that, that seems like a lot. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I think that many times service coordinators will look like the population that they're serving um, sometimes that doesn't happen. Um, but I, you know, relationship building is key when it comes to who we are picking to be service coordinators. 
Um, so that definitely um, plays a huge role in the connections that people are making at the site. Yeah, we, we and we, like I said before, we run programs for clients and what we always have said is, you know, hopefully that relationship or that relationship with the service coordinator and that actual property manager needs to be key because that's what kind of makes the property run. Typically, these properties are a property ma- uh, property manager and someone doing maintenance and then the service coordinator. So depending on how big the property is, but that is key. And so we always involve the, the property manager in the hiring process. Um, and then, you know, I think the property manager typically, you know, has an idea of what the what the residents um, would go for as far as who they can trust. I mean, you know, a lot of these people uh, have trust issues. They've they throughout their whole life, and all of a sudden, a service coordinator comes in and says, "Hey, you know, I want to help you do this. I want to help you do this. And look, I have all these benefits for you that are just waiting for you." And they're just like, "What?" No thanks. Uh, you know. So sometimes it takes six months. Sometimes it takes a year for, you know, that trust to build with that resident. So so what Tara was saying was kind of uh, like-minded people, uh, you know, being able to share stories is kind of what is what resonates with with uh, with seniors. And, you know, hey, sometimes sometimes they grew they grew up in a different world than we did. So, you know, uh, you know, some sometimes it's it's best to, you know, do what they're going to uh, you know, want to make uh, friends with, I guess, more than anything and be able to trust them. Yeah. Well, I think of what Tara said earlier and in, in this idea that a service coordinator could almost be thought of as the, as the child of the person living there. And so, yeah, you want them to really be able to, um, to have that experience. And it, it makes me so happy to hear you guys describe this because I feel like the value of lived experience, well, lived experience is devalued, um, yeah. but, you know, as, as something that would help you be effective in a job or just even effective in life. And to know that someone who's intersecting in such an important place in people's lives, that that is something that a priority is placed on that when you're looking at who's going to be most effective in this role and that you can teach some of those other skills, but you can't you can't plug in a person who is not from that culture or experience and expect them to be as effective. So that's pretty revolutionary. It shouldn't be, <laughs> but it is. Sometimes yeah. we'll get sometimes we'll get college graduates that are, you know, just full of energy, you know, just running all over the place. And initially everybody's, you know, the residents are probably like, what the heck is going on? But <laughs> They sometimes the youngest service coordinators become the best service coordinators. So, um, so yeah, you you never know what someone's going to bring to to the table. And uh, you know, I think uh, Tara and I are, hopefully we can get uh, more of the good stuff out of all our service coordinators and uh, bring that positivity back to all those residents out there because I think those residents are needing it, especially right now. What's the typical caseload for a service coordinator? Just out of curiosity. Yeah. So. Um Typically, the staffing ratio, so to speak, is about one full-time service coordinator for anywhere between 80 and like 120 units. Wow. Um, it really depends on the site, how that ratio comes out. Um, so I've seen everything from um, like a full-time service coordinator for like 60 units all the way to like one service coordinator for like almost 300 units. Um, so there's not, it's not a great consistent thing across the whole board. Um, and at least for us internally, we tend to kind of tweak 
the requirements of the program or what the service coordinator hones in on based on those ratios. You can't expect to have people in the, with the, that variety of ratio be doing the exact same things. Um, and so that's part of why it's important to have like quality assurance and a, like we have a great documentation tool that they use. We can um, adjust accordingly the expectations of that staff person based on the number of people they're expected to serve. Um, we also use a model that really hones in on um, using the assessments we talked about earlier to identify people who are not only currently having the highest amount of needs, but have more kind of like risk. Um, so there, there's a key um, assessment that is used in community-based settings, the Vulnerable Elder Survey. It's kind of like an, an activities of daily living type of tool, um, but it uses the information. Um, it's efficacy shows that it is somewhat predictive of the risk for a future, like in the next 18 months, I think it is, a health event or even death that could lead to like a significant need for a change of care. Um, and so we use that amongst other assessments to really hone in on, even if a resident isn't appearing like right now, like anything is going on, um, if, they're if their indicators show that they may be higher risk or have future needs that may arise, um, we kind of check out in on them more often. Whereas residents who are, you know, maybe they have less chronic conditions, they are fine with their ADLs, they are have good finances in place, et cetera. That might be a resident that it's more, if you see them in the hall, you're going to say hello, see how things are going, but you're not necessarily like seeking out knocking on their door every so often, um, you know, that you're assuming that they're going to be okay based on what you know about their situation and that they are, they have the skills and tools to identify if a need arose and, and present that to the service coordinator. Um, so there's a lot of different kind of techniques that organizations use to try to make the ratios work. Um, but that also means that certain settings, it's the ratios are even larger sometimes with family type sites. And so many times service coordinators are relying more on group type of service delivery, uh, educational programs, um, especially when it comes to uh, like bringing in GED classes, English as a second language classes, um, computer classes, job readiness programs. And then their role is more a program coordinator and a liaison with like volunteers and other people who can come in to bring services to the residents. Um, rather than being more on a like one-on-one -on -one type of basis with residents. So there's a lot of flexibility in the field to meet meet the the program where it's at, so to speak. You know, what the resources we have, we will do what we can with it and um, use a program model that makes the most sense given all of that, those factors. So let's say that the houses of U.S. government are somehow able to agree and pass this $1.9 billion uh, thing that includes a lot of money for community-based health care and, and, and really uh, kind of at its base keeping people out of the hospital and keeping people safe and healthy in their homes. Is there a possibility that some of that money could come to sh shrink those ratios a bit and employ more service coordinators? Is that something that the service coordinator industry is looking at? 
Well, we're hoping if that does pass, I think it was about $109 million of uh, new service coordinator program funds. So we are crossing our fingers, but we are hoping uh, maybe, you know, towards the end of this year that we're going to be able to get a, a notification of funds here and, and say that, hey, there's going to be a lot more service coordinators out there because, you know, when I first came to this organization, National Church Rises, 15 years ago, it was all about housing, just housing, affordable housing. Yeah. Build, 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 build. And really about 10 years ago became about housing with services. And I think we're seeing that all over the industry. You know, yes, you can build a house for somebody, but unless they have all the connections and all the supports, you know, so so it's really it's great to see, you know, uh, just organizations like ourselves just just going out there and and. and touching as many lives as we possibly can. So yes, if it's, if it means more uh, affordable housing folks that we're touching, or if it's out in the community, um, that's what, that's, that's what we're looking to do. So. Yeah. And I, I think that there is um, maybe an opportunity for programs, um, especially when we think about the senior space, um, partnering with insurance payers, um, Medicare plans, essentially, um, uh, you know, a lot of our Medicare and Medicaid both are, even though there's a government entity driving those things, um, the programs are actually administered by insurance companies um, it, for many, many people who use those services. And so thinking through the idea that they have a huge stake in the lives of the residents that we're serving, because if we can influence the health outcomes of those residents, we're saving money to Medicare. And, um, and obviously, insurance companies care a lot about saving money. <laughs> so um, that well, I think that that's also there's, that there's also opportunity in that space to layer in um, partnerships that are driven by um, the, the how social determinants of health play into the full team that helps um, manage health in a managed care type of setting. Um, and I think that there's a lot of room there that maybe maybe the um, federal dollars don't directly say, and this is going to be earmarked for service coordinators that are working with insurance payers. But insurance payers have a lot of um, ability to take the, the funds that they have to manage and use, use those things in ways to better serve the people that they represent. Um, and so there, I think in that way, there's also um, opportunity for service coordination to be funded through those, through new and different ways. Um, whether I think that those types of service coordinators will tend to be in community-based settings rather than tied to affordable housing mm -hmm. um, or that they are serving an affordable housing community as part of a program that also serves the community around that building. Well, and I think that's one of the things that perhaps maybe has been a gift from COVID is some more data around housing as healthcare and how those two things intersect with, you know, seen some things where they've moved homeless people into hotels to get them off the street to help control infection and how their health has improved just by simply by having safe housing. Yes. Yeah, that's so true. And there is a whole, we haven't even talked about it at all in the affordable housing world there's a whole kind of niche for permanent supportive housing or um housing primarily target to serve people who are 
formerly chronically homeless. Um, and the service layering there typically doesn't include service coordinators because it includes mental health professionals and licensed staff and um, many times even having kind of like a an interdisciplinary team that comes to the site of primary care doctor, psychiatrist, et cetera. Um, and I, there is a trend toward not necessarily having sites designated as permanent supportive housing, but as state or the federal government fund new um, projects that they want a certain amount of units designated as permanent supportive housing um, or that type of model that um, set aside for people who maybe need more supports to be able to stay housed. Um, and I think that that gets to exactly what you're saying, which is we're seeing that it's we're at the point where not investing in social safety nets as an as a country will be detrimental to everyone, not just the people who need the social safety net. And so we are seeing a trickle of investment in that direction. Yeah, we are starting to see that our fates are bound together yes. <laughs> in undeniable ways. Yeah. Talk to us about, uh, so for instance, Healwell, I, we have affordable housing around where we're based here in Arlington, Virginia. As a service coordinator, do you love or hate calls from providers in the community who say like, I'm here, I just found out you're a thing. Would it be useful to meet up so I can talk with you about how I might be able to support your residents? Yeah, I, I I think service coordinators get calls from providers all the time, you know, and they're kind of uh, kind of the uh, security guard to those residents, you know. Yeah. You never know who's you know knocking on the door, you know. But uh, but yeah, I, I think service coordinators uh, would definitely take a call from somebody in in your place, and and that's what I was going to ask: what 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 could what do you see? An organization like yours, how how could service coordinators benefit from an uh, organization like yours? And you know, is it globally? Is it just in certain states? I mean, what could they do to bring more of this more of this into their their communities? Yeah, well, I think for us, I mean, maybe I'm unique in not knowing about the existence of service coordinators until recently. But I I feel like so much of what we do specifically at Healwell is through partnership with palliative care programs and more and more of those are community-based. And I, I feel like there could be possibly even less people in palliative care if care coordinators knew about palliative care and the possibilities of like spotting someone who is developing complications from a chronic illness early and being able to connect them with the right kind of resources in advance. And then certainly, I mean, palliative care is so poorly understood and people think it means end of life care, but it doesn't. Um, you know, it really is quality of life care and it can go on for years and can actually extend not only the quantity, but the quality of a person's life. And feel like every service coordinator should be in touch with the local palliative care service and hospice also, but that those are separate. And when I taught about this on the service coordinator conference last year, I got a ton of calls and emails from people saying that was great. I didn't know those were different. And I, you know, I'm trying to figure out how to talk to my property manager about like doing education around this and that like, it's not going to scare people. It's actually going to empower people. And uh, so I think there are, uh, you know, I think Healwell is unique in sort of the things that we offer, but I'm thinking even just about massage therapists who really 
love to work with this population and don't know that this is an opportunity. Certainly we'd have to get creative about funding and, you know, some people might volunteer, but, you know, at Healwell, we sort of say like, are the other healthcare providers volunteering? Um, <laughs> if they are, then we'll volunteer, but otherwise we have to figure out how to fund it. But yeah. I do, I think there's incredible opportunity, particularly with, as you know, you're saying, Dan, there's so many widows and single people who really are just trying to get by and maybe the service coordinator is their only contact. So what if also at least once a month, they have a massage therapist coming and, you know, we touch them, but we also just wind up spending an hour of just hanging out with them in this really like social worky kind of way. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, when we are working in the hospital, we often, as a massage therapist, people relax while we're touching them. They, just as you described, Tara, we're sort of like these undercover agents because they don't realize they're telling us really important things. And then we can reach back to other members of the team and say, I just wanted to make sure that you knew that this person is struggling with this. or they're concerned about that. And that, it just becomes another member of the team trying to keep this person healthy and, and having a good quality of life. So, well, and um, I've often said that we are underutilized in healthcare as well as a massage therapist, you know, as, as Cal said, we're, we're with a person for most times an hour and we're often seeing them on a consistent basis once a month. So our ability to gather information is very different than say someone going in to see their physician for 15 minutes twice a year. So I really think healthcare could benefit from people seeing massage therapists, someone who's with that person. We, we develop relationship with them. They become comfortable with us. They do disclose a lot of information that would, I think, be very valuable to share across all service providers. Yeah, so, I think the, um, many times the key for kind of getting in the door, so to speak, um, service coordinators always keep their residents in mind. And so the first thing a service coordinator is going to ask two questions. One, will you come to my building and deliver your education services, et cetera, directly on site to my mm -hmm. residents? Yes. Or, or the, are they going to have to get a ride to you? If you're coming to them, that's one great check mark. Okay. And I think the other thing typically is that service coordinators are aware of the health benefits that their residents have. Medicare, Medicaid usually are the primary payers that you're working with. And if they see that a provider only takes private insurance, or they only take a niche amount, uh, you know, they're carved out in a way that half the people are not going to be able to use this service or are going to have to pay out of pocket. They probably will be like, sorry, I'm going to find a different provider because you aren't going to be able to serve my clients in an affordable way. Um, or if, or if a provider operates on like sliding scales and those sorts of things. So they're always looking at the affordability and accessibility mm -hmm. of services. And um, there is a lot of kind of like mutually beneficial nature to the, that linkage because the service courier now has a great provider to work with that they can refer people to and get people's needs met. And the provider has a referral source. Um, but I think because service couriers understand, and as an industry, we're understanding more and more we have we have people that we have access to and are gatekeepers to those people to a certain extent. Um, service coordinators can tend to be somewhat choosy about who they partner with because they um, they don't need to make other people money. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like they're they're primarily there for the residents. Um, and so as massage therapists or other healthcare professionals, 
if you are approaching a service coordinator from a like-minded place that I'm really here just to, to get people what they need, um, that's going to be a, a much better opportunity for a relationship at a site than um, I'm here to get a lot of referrals from you because I just want a lot of referrals. Um, <laughs> service coordinators will see through that. The, the um, yeah, the, be, especially because they're so relational. If the moment there's a whiff of, I'm here for selfish reasons and I don't actually care about the residents, it's like, okay, thanks yeah. for stopping by. We're gonna never talk to you again. Thank you, I don't think I will. <laughs> right. That, that, yeah. that was my question. How is the service typically paid for? Is it privately paid for? Is it, is it do they... Do you join with another hospice organization and maybe they pay it's paid through that? How's it? Yeah, it really, it really varies. And this is a place where we have a lot of work to do as a profession, I think in Canada and in, in the States in terms of uh, insurance reimbursement for manual therapies. And, uh, but we are starting to see at least here, some, uh, some creative things like um, per diem through hospice can include a massage therapist or through a palliative care program uh, that a massage therapist can't be a standalone provider. But if that person is working under the umbrella of another care team, uh, they can be covered. And certainly, I mean, there are local organizations we've partnered, you know, to be able to work with people at the local homeless shelter where we actually worked with a local funder to support our ability to be there. So um, obviously the first thing would be to develop a relationship with the service coordinator and help them understand that we need to put food on the table, but really we're here because we love people and we think they should live long, happy lives if they want to. <laughs> and the residents yeah. do love food when you bring food. Ah, <laughs> yeah. good to know. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I'll be there to teach them and bring snacks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that's what's service coordinators really, really struggle with is getting the residents out of their apartments, come down to an event that might be about diabetes or Alzheimer's or dementia. It's just like, oh, do I have to sit through another event like that? So anything a provider can do as far as bringing in that education, but also doing something that's going to actually help the residents mm -hmm. or make it fun, fun um, yeah. or be able to stretch it out way beyond just that meeting is, is always a plus. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm so glad you guys exist and that you were willing to take some time with us today. As with all of our guests, I wish we had another three hours to talk with you because I think there's a lot of overlap. But um, Dan and Tara, I think we're, we're going to become besties because I think there are a lot of places where um, we can make life better for residents that maybe none of us have thought of yet. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. Um, Kathy, any uh, last questions? No, uh, as you said, Cal, just really grateful to hear what you folks are doing out there and how you're caring for your communities. Thank you yeah, so much for, for, for being with thanks. us. Yeah, absolutely. And all you listeners out there, thanks for joining us for Interdisciplinary. Uh, remember to come check out our Just Care, Social Justice and Healthcare Conference coming up in October. And uh, that'll be in the show notes. We also have our Opening to the Mystery course coming up uh, toward the end of June. If you want to snuggle up to your mortality and be a better caregiver to people who might someday die, which by the way, would be everybody. Uh, we do have a, that's a virtual event these days. So you can do it from the comfort of your home. Uh, and you can check that out too. Come listen to us. We've got, I think, another show or two this season before we take a wee break. So uh, be with us, be well, and uh, thanks. Interdisciplinary is produced by Healwell. Our theme music is by Harry Pickens. You can send us feedback at info at healwell.org. That's info at healwell.org. 
new episodes will be posted weekly via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and our Facebook page. Thank you.